good morning or good afternoon whenever you choose to watch this. Uh, I want to say to so many of you, thanks for your patience with us um, as we've been trying to get this sorted out. It was actually really exciting seeing like several hundred notifications pop up, uh, which means the church dispersed still wants to be together. And that's a good thing. And so I just want to say thank you. Um, and so thanks for choosing to watch this at a later time. It is good to be the church. And although we can't be uh, together right now, we can unite our hearts and our minds in, in worship and praise and song and as we look into God's Word. This is good. And so um, thank you. Uh, whenever you're choosing to watch this, um, we are in our series on conversations, how Jesus engaged with others. And, and honestly, listen, we get the irony right now. <laughs> the irony, there are about 10 of us gathered right now, right here. And so we get the irony, and um, it's okay. We still do want to look at the idea of how Jesus engaged with others. Uh, and this is the normal time in the service where I'd say a special welcome to our living room uh, service. And so I'll say this to you in the living room. I assume as you watch this, that you're going to talk back at me, whatever, on your phone, on your screen, whatever. So I'm counting on that. Please kind of talk back at me. Um, I know multiple life groups are planning to get together and and watch together. Please engage, stop, and and have some good conversations. So grab your Bible. We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning. We're going to read a lot uh, and, and talk a lot about how Jesus engaged well. Grab your coffee if you need it. Um, and just, I want to encourage you as you watch this, if you need something, if you need prayer, if you need other encouragement, uh, post something on that, on that Facebook feed and uh, allow other people to pray for you, even if it has to be at a later time. Um, that way we can know, we can pray for each other, we can encourage each other well. Let's pray. Uh, Father, commit this time uh, right now to you as we look into your word Stir our hearts that we might engage well, that we might be willing to connect the dots in our own hearts and minds about how you want to engage with us. We need your help in that, Jesus. Amen. Well, we've been in John uh, chapter 3 a couple weeks ago. We looked at this idea uh, as Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus, and we saw how how that encounter went. Uh, We were in John chapter 4 talking about the woman at the well. Um, those were both individual conversations, but today is a, is a kind of group conversation. We get to see how Jesus interacted with his disciples, but how he interacted with uh, lots of people at the same time. Each person we've seen so far has, though, struggled to make the connections that Jesus was trying to make with them. You know, they're asking in their hearts, who, who is Jesus? What does he have to say? Why is he different? And honestly, who is this guy? Is he... A rabbi? Is he a prophet? Is he a magic man who can somehow read my thoughts? Is he the Messiah? You know, we have our own sets of questions today, right? Um, Who is this guy? Is he just a moral teacher? Does he somehow belong to one political party? Um, Is he Is he primarily a revolutionary? Um, And honestly, will he ultimately be Savior and Lord? Is our biggest question. Here's the good news. Jesus met them where they were in conversation, and he wants to meet us right where we're at with the questions of our hearts. 
He wants to do that for us today. So by the time we get to John 6, more has transpired, and we can see that Jesus is gaining a following. People want to be where he's at. Because he, um, he healed uh, an official son, and we see that he healed him from a distance. And he healed a, a man at a pool. And people start to take notice, and they want to be where he is. What is he going to do next? But we also see that he's also causing some ripples here. Um, He's gaining a reputation with the Jewish leaders who start to persecute him. And and so we get to John chapter 6, and people have begun to notice signs. When I say that, I'll be, with all that's been going on recently, you know what my mind automatically goes to talking about signs. Uh, It made me think of a time this last week when uh, the Atlanta Braves trolled the Houston Astros. And as they walked out on the baseball field, they played the 1993 song, I Saw the Sign. I appreciate that a lot because I was in high school in 1993, and so I got a good chuckle out of it. This is not that kind of sign, okay? Let's look in, in John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We're going to read a lot today. I hope you have your Bibles open. Would you read with us as we read John chapter 6, verse 1? Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. And they saw Jesus, they saw what he'd been doing, and they are intrigued enough that they just go where he goes. What's this guy going to do next? So they start to gather to Jesus, and we get what's recorded for us as, as the, the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and this is the only miracle that we have before the re- resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. It's as if it's important. Um, and, and we know that this is, this is the most public of all of his miracles. It's, this is 20,000-ish people. Do you want to know what 20,000 people looks like? Look on the screen. I, I think this is a good estimation. What does 20,000 people look like? It looks like a whole mess of people. And John is going to use this miracle, recording it, to connect the dots to something really important in a few verses. Well, because this is recorded in all four Gospels, when we take them together, we can kind of get a good understanding of what's going on. So I want to paraphrase the next several verses here and just say this. When we take all four accounts together, here's what we get. Jesus has his close followers gathered around him, and he sees the crowds coming to him. And Mark records something really interesting here. And it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because he realized they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught them many things. He began to teach them many things, and there begins to be a realization that these people are going to need something. They're going to need help. And Jesus puts the question out there to his disciples, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to help them? You do something about this. John records, he says, but he already knew in his head what he planned to do. Um, Disciples, you give them something to eat, and the disciples have the opportunity to ponder this for a while, and they just cannot get it. They cannot connect the dots. So they start to think, you know what? Even if we have, we found a a young boy here with five loaves, two fishes, but what is that? That's going to be not even a bite for everybody. Maybe we should send them aside to the neighboring towns and areas to get lodging and food. And they miss the point. 
They've been given the opportunity to connect the dots, and it's as if they've forgotten that they are with the one who just healed people. They're with the one who took ordinary water and turned it into the best kind of wine. They miss it. But Jesus has a plan. Jesus always has a plan. And um, I want to take a time out here for just a second. And, you know, we've been talking about the idea of having conversations. How do we engage well with people? Um, And yet in this situation, we're talking about dealing with crowds, right? Honestly, crowds, crowds just bring out the annoyances in so many of us. And there's a reason why it's important that Mark recorded this here, that Jesus looked out on the crowds and he had great compassion on them. What that means is that he had empathy for them. He put himself himself in their shoes. He tried to understand what was going on in their hearts and minds. Why does this even matter? What's the most annoying thing you can think of right now? I started to think through a few things. Uh, This is day three with no sports. You know, this is, um, and then I thought, maybe Duke basketball for me, what's the most annoying thing? And then I thought, nope, maybe what we could all really agree upon might be this picture. What's the most important, what's the most annoying thing you can think of? The person with 400 rolls of toilet paper. I hope that's not you. Or if it is you, you're actually planning to distribute that to your neighbors because they might need help. If you need that much, you might actually have some other problems. Let's talk about that. Um, But I started thinking about this annoyance. Um, And and crowds and lots of people can make us annoyed. but, But we have to move past that. There are so many things you could be annoyed by right now. Go online. There's something you could be annoyed by. Our compassion has to be greater than our annoyances right now. Has to. Um, Annoyed people try to win arguments. Compassionate people have conversations. As you engage with people right now in various capacities, let your compassion outweigh your annoyance. See people as Jesus would see them, maybe even as sheep who need a shepherd. All right. Done with the timeout. Uh, back to the plan. Look at verse chapter 6, verse 10. So Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So we see that Jesus gave thanks and he distributed to everyone. And what happens? He passes out more and more and more and more. The same with the fish. As much as they wanted and they got a miracle. And they got 12 baskets left over. And we find that people continue to struggle to make the connection. They're standing with this man who can do these things, but they're not making the connection. What do we mean by that? When we say that, what does that mean? Because it seems as if some people here are really trying to make a good connection. As you read this, it seems as if they're trying to connect the dots. While while this is happening, um, people are starting to think through their history lessons. They're starting to think through their history. They're first thinking, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. What does this remind us of? This reminds us of Moses. And and we're getting food. This reminds us of how Moses fed our parents. 
He gave them bread to eat, bread in the desert, the manna. Remember manna? Remember that? Remember back in Exodus 16, it says this, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and all ate the food we wanted. Hear the parallel here, right? But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? They remembered the provision of manna. They also remembered something else. This also reminded them of something else Moses had said would happen. There was going to come a prophet. Deuteronomy 18 talked about this. Uh, Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Down in verse 18 it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. So they're remembering. And they really are trying to connect the dots here. But even with thinking through these things, they're struggling to make the correct connections. They're struggling. So they spring to action. Look what happens in verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So they struggle to make the connection. They are still seeing only the physical and not the spiritual right in front of them. They only see their version of the Messiah. But the reality is, if this is the Messiah, he's going to come on his terms, not theirs. And Jesus refuses. This isn't the time or the place And unlike the Mandalorians, this is not the way. And so Jesus refused and sent the disciples on ahead of him across the lake. And this is where we get the next story here in John chapter 6. Your Bible might have a heading that says, Jesus walks on the water. And this story is told three different places in the Gospels. And we get two more miracles here, maybe even a third, where Jesus walks on the water and Peter in faith responds to him and he walks on the water and we don't have time to go through this whole story here. There's a lot to talk about. Maybe you could talk about this with your family or with your life group or with other people. Some things you could talk about. The, the disciples obeyed Jesus and they got a storm anyway. Just like us. Sometimes we obey Jesus and still get the storm. Jesus came in the darkest part of the night. Remember, Sam um, last week talked about the, the significance of light and dark. Well, Jesus came to them in the darkest moment. And or what about this? Did Jesus forget them? Does he forget us? No. Jesus meets us in the middle of our storms. You could talk about those things. But this, this was one more opportunity for the disciples. In fact, it was a gift for the disciples. Jesus meeting them, meeting them out there in the middle of the lake was a gift to them because he reminded them, I am with you. Do not be afraid. I am who I say that I am. Those are really good words for us right now. 
It's as if he's saying to the disciples, hey, look, you guys didn't do so well that last time. Remember the 5,000? You didn't do so hot. You didn't remember who I was. Can I give you another gift? Remember I am who I say that I am. Friends, Jesus wants to show you again who he is as well. Well, we keep going and we get to the section of Jesus being the bread of life. And so um, we're going to read some of this, make some comments, and then we're going to get to the end of saying, by the way, so what? So what? Look with me in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they start asking, Jesus, when did you get here? Again, they're thinking physical, not spiritual. And Jesus gets right to the point, right to the heart of the matter. He talks to them about the difference between what they want and what they need. You're seeking me because you got what you want, food, but what you need is something more, something that's going to last, something that is eternal. These followers of Jesus were struggling to make the connection because their bellies were full and their hearts were empty. And it's easy for us to fall into the same kind of thinking where we say, you know what, as long as I have this one thing, I'm okay. As long as I have this one thing in my life, Jesus and me, we're doing good. What is it? might be full health. It might be a full bank account. It might be full investments that are doing okay. It, it might be a full family life. At least my family is okay. Everything's okay. But those things can be just like our bellies. We can be filled up with health and provision and family, and yet our hearts can be empty spiritually. We can feel like we're okay, but we're living with empty hearts. They're still struggling. So when Jesus says not to work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life, they start thinking in terms of a checklist, like many of us do. He says in verse, or verse 28 says this, Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? This is, in, in other words, how do we check off the appropriate boxes to get what we want? We want to know the checklist. Jesus, give us the checklist. Are you a checklist person? I absolutely am. Um, Realize there's a difference, though. My wife is a checklist person, except she can keep the entire checklist in her head. She never has to write anything down. I'm a checklist person that has to write it down. If it's not written down, it doesn't happen. Just like if the medicine is not on the counter, I probably won't take it. Two kinds of checklist people. Um, The danger is, though, that we can check all the boxes but have empty hearts. We can do the checklist of, I did all the right work. I worked really hard, Jesus. And yet our hearts are empty. Jesus answered in verse 29, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The work is faith. The work is to focus on the sent one. This is what Jesus spoke about with Nicodemus. Turning your Bibles back a few pages to John chapter 3. Remember this, we, we just talked about this. John 3, uh, verse 13. The work is faith 
In verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Remember the snakes in the desert? Remember that? We talked about this just a few weeks ago. Um, you got bit? You got, you're dying? What was the checklist? Look up and live? Can you imagine thinking through those people that were even unwilling to do that? Look up and live. What's the checklist here? Look to Jesus and live. And they're not getting it. They're missing the connection. And we know that because they ask for another sign. Uh, keep going here in verse 30. So they asked him, what sign then? Will you, really, what sign? What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What are you going to do for us, Jesus? Moses gave us manna every day. He provided for us every day. But they don't get it. Moses didn't give them manna. God did. God was the one who was providing every day. They had too much Moses. Right now, they have too much Moses and not enough Jesus. Jesus is trying to tell them, I'm better than Moses. I'm better than the Old Testament writings. I'm better than the manna because every single one of those things points to me. You don't get it. They're missing the connection. Verse 34, Sir, they said, always give us this bread. What they want is this kind of provision every single day. And Jesus responds, understanding the difference between what they want and what they need, what they're asking for and what their hearts really must have. And he says it right here in verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. It's, it's the first of the seven I am statements in the book of John. You probably are familiar with these. These statements that identified both Jesus as God and also his relationship to people. What does he actually do for us? In, in chapter, uh, so we have here the first one. In chapter 8, we, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says, I am the gate. And he later says, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, he says, just in case you're wondering, I am the vine, and if you are not connected to me, that's the only thing that matters. But first, he says, I am the bread of life. And he's going to say it multiple times. Skip all the way down to verse 47 with me. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And here it is. In the midst of their uncertainties and missing the connection, Jesus connects the dots. 
Jesus connects the dots for them so clearly. I know that you want physical food every day. It's actually a real need. I get that. But what you need spiritually is the spiritual food that only I can give you. It's not a checklist and it's not on your terms, just like my kingdom is not going to be on your terms. My kingdom will not be like what you think it should be. But it's not going to be without power. My kingdom is the kingdom of changed hearts. It's the kingdom of the widow's might. It's the kingdom of the tax collector's repentance. It's the kingdom of the leper's joy. The kingdom of the demoniac's restoration. The kingdom of the thief's recognition of who Jesus is. It's going to start with the heart and it requires a choice. What will you do with the one who is right in front of you? It's not enough to just want free stuff from the Savior. Friends, um, don't miss the connection here. Jesus' followers were spiritually empty. In fact, they didn't even know that they were starving even though their bellies were full. He wanted them to know how to be eternally satisfied, and he wants the same for you and me. And and so we need to ask ourselves a couple questions here. The first is this. um, Are you spiritually starving? Are you spiritually starving because you've not accepted the true bread from heaven because you've not accepted the first and primary work of God to believe in Jesus? My prayer is that today you would recognize you're starving and you would turn to the only one that can, that can provide you real bread, real filling forever and ever and ever. This rest of the chapter describes many who were unwilling to make that choice because Jesus is going to say some hard words to to everyone in just a a few verses. He says something that seems so controversial. He says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Unless you do, you have no life in you. He wasn't talking literally. It was the spiritual symbol. Feast on me first in belief, first in salvation. And so you and I, we have to make the, uh, connect the dots as well. You and I have to think spiritually here. here and and we, have to, we should be asking ourselves and each other another question. Are you spiritually empty? Because while you may know the true bread of life, many of us walk around spiritually empty all the time. Are you daily missing the connection with the bread of life? Are you running on fumes? Um, this made me think a few weeks ago, uh, you know, I was looking at trending topics on Twitter. And I noticed that a Bible verse was right in the top slot. I was like, what is going on here? I looked, and you know, as it is, uh, lots of comments. People really excited, thank you, Jesus, posting this verse. Other people saying, yep, hey, Christians, why don't you practice what you preach? You know what the verse was? I don't remember the exact verse, but what it was, it was from the Bible app. And it was the verse of the day. And people were just tweeting out the verse of the day. And it was the number one spot on Twitter. Hey friends, too many of us are living spiritual lives where the verse of the day is getting us through. And the reality is it's not getting us through. We are spiritually empty. Is that enough to be filled up? Are we missing Jesus when this is how we fill up? Arkent Hughes asked a good question regarding uh, whether we miss Jesus. He says this, What kind of God do we serve? The answer to that question is the continental divide in the practice of the Christian life. 
We can read the Apostles' Creed. We can subscribe to the vast, unfathomable doctrines of the greatness of our God and yet get into the fray and discover that our actual concept of God is something different. When we are in the battle, we need a concept of God that is consistent with the God revealed in the Bible. That is what we need, but how can we achieve it? I would say the other side of that is how can we be filled up? Not living by the news cycle, not living by the notifications, those things often lead to anxiety and fear and selfishness. How can we achieve the relationships with God consistent with how he reveals himself to us? Another way to ask this would be this. How do you and I feast on Jesus? Um, I asked this question to um, some people in our church family this last week. And I just said, how do you feast on Jesus? How are you intimately connected to him? How do you go back to him over and over and over and be filled up? And so I asked um, Linda and Kristen and Randy and Rachel, how do you fill up and feast on Jesus? Here's what they said. So, um, besides my own personal time in the Word and in fellowship with the Lord, there have been a couple things that have really helped me to go deeper in my relationship with Christ. One have been women that God has brought into my life. I did not grow up in a Christian home. And over the years, God has brought me godly women as Ruth Ann, Theobald, and Arlene French, just to name two who have modeled for me consistent prayer life and uh, also memorization of the word. And sitting with them have been the sweetest moments when they spoke truth into me, scripture into my life, and prayed over me. Another thing is that I have, over the many years, spent time teaching Sunday school, Splash, Hawana, and I've had to really dig into the scripture to prepare. And so doing that, Not only was I learning and growing in the Word, but I had to look at what I was teaching to make sure I was modeling my life for the young people that I was teaching. Just like these older women model for me godliness, and I wanted to model my life after them. As of recently, I have deeply connected with Jesus in stillness. Um, Something that I tend to do a lot is think back on how my day was and then evaluate how I did by how hard I worked or how much I got done or just how effective I was. But really I didn't surrender to the identity that he has given me, which is his beloved child. So one way that I have um, deeply connected with Jesus is by setting aside just 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes a day in stillness. And that's like silence, solitude, just nothing. And that is so hard for me (laughs) to just sit still. Having a little one at home, he's almost 15 months old, and I'm able to be at home with him during the day. So it can be during the nap time when I know for sure that I will have at least 15 minutes (laughs) of sleep to, to sit down and have quietness and stillness. It's a, it's a great topic because it's so basic and just vital to my Christian walk. Um, you know, I think that's become really clear in a new way maybe over the last several months. Uh, as I've heard or read stories about individuals that have deconstructed their faith and walked away from the church. And, you know, that just 
pulls at my heart and I wonder, you know, I try to think about what's going on there. And I keep asking myself, you know, was, was their faith keeping pace with everything that was going on around them? Um, you know, the circumstances that they're in, the, the cultural pressures that surround them, uh, were they really growing? Were they feeding? Um, you know, David says to us in the Psalms, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what I really want to do. I want to taste and see. And so, you know, it's, it would be like going to a restaurant and, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm just looking at the menu and I'm, I'm looking at the pictures and thinking, wow, this stuff looks great. Uh, but then I just close the menu and I walk away. You know, do I get any nutrition from that? No. Um, I have to order something and I have to eat it and consume it and taste it. And that's, that's what I have to do. And it's not a one-time thing either. I have to taste over and over again. You know, it's sometimes maybe easy to say, okay, I've done that, you know, I'm good, check off. Um, but it's, it's a continual habit that we build. And sometimes maybe I come to God and it doesn't taste right. What do I have to do? I have to discipline myself and I have to um, create this habit and I have to actually build a spiritual palate that desires what is good. And that, that's work, that can be tough, but that's, that's what we have to do. And sometimes I may not feel like it, and I have to say, God, you know, give me the desire, basic, simple, give me the desire for what is good. Give me the desire for more of you. This, this feasting on Jesus idea um, is, is interesting to me because it, this actually began a couple of years ago when dealing with um, some girls and, and, and trying to figure out where do we get, where can we get started on this where so there's not this guilt, you've got to read massive amounts and the busy lives, but we're in God's word, not, not just looking at a devo, not just, but we're in his word, we're putting that in. So the idea came around, we're going to do one chapter a, a week. We're going to break it down, whatever that is, and and it's going to be maybe it's four or five verses. Sometimes it's ten if it's a longer chapter, but it's the idea that we're going to read this every day. And the challenge was in the morning for all of us because we're stepping into every all of us stepping into the battlefield. We want armor on first. For me, what it looks like is I get up in the morning at 5:30 because that's my day starts as a school teacher. So opening up that word it's already laid out for the week so i know what i'm going to read every single day and it's it's not a um, i don't know what i'm it's planned out um, and so sitting down and putting that flashlight on those scripture scripture passages uh is 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 crucial for me but before that happens we've discovered as we've talked is we're so cluttered oftentimes we just keep putting things on top of things and and it, it's, it's going nowhere. It doesn't feel like anything's going on. We, we have so much in us that needs to be emptied out. So the idea of opening up, opening up our hearts, opening up the Word of God, and then emptying out confession, getting rid of what's in there that doesn't need to be in there, shouldn't be in there, that maybe was intentionally put in there or not intentionally put in there. And then we can fill up. We can feast on this Word. But it has to be the opening up confession and then we feast, we, we fill up with who he is. But the feasting on his word is crucial. And, and it's easy to do when you make it a habit and you do it a little bit every day and it's planned out.
Um, friends, I want to invite you to feast on Jesus. Uh, especially in times of uncertainty, when it's easy to be anxious and fearful. Don't have full bellies and empty hearts. Feast on Jesus. You heard several really great ideas here. Feast on Jesus in the silence and in confession and in intentionality and tasting and seeing that he's good, being in his word, uh, even encouragement with other believers. Be filled up in Jesus. Have a full heart. As we close out this service, um, we're going to sing that song we just sang, and I want to encourage you to talk to the Lord, to tell him these things. If you are empty, tell him that. Talk to him. Be filled up. Make plans to be filled up, to spend time and feast on Jesus.